today, UCI African American Studies professor John Mario III will take his Afro-pessimism to give us tools in understanding our work ahead in racial identity. Welcome to the November 12 edition of Digging Out. My guest today is John Murillo III, Professor of African American Studies at UC Irvine's School of Humanities. In January, he has a book coming out, Impossible Stories on the Space in Time of Black Destructive Creation. It's being published by Ohio State University Press. He completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Cognitive Science and English at UCI and his PhD in English at Brown University. His work is so varied and intriguing, blending theoretical physics and black studies, it sets him up for a very special take, an essential take on the temporal aspects of American political identities. We're recording this on November 10th, John comes to us today from his home in Irvine. Welcome to Digging Out John Murillo III. Thank you, thank you. It's uh, good to be here. <laughs> thank you. Well, each day is new rubble piling up. We are dealing, we're bobbing and weaving with this persistent lie out of the White House, the president's refusal to concede to President-elect Joe Biden if you will allow your thinking in this moment and perhaps what your students are saying, they've maybe only had the opportunity of office hours since the president-elect was declared over the weekend, looking through the lens of what you've expressed as black space and time is really weird. It's really weird this week. Yeah, um, it's, that's uh, perhaps an understatement, I guess, at this point. But yeah, I, I've had conversations with my students just prior to this. Um, we have classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So last Thursday, in the middle of waiting for the results and all that, I, we did discuss some things. And um, I do text back and forth with my students. They have my phone number just so they have easier access to me. So I, I've been getting text messages from some of them about what's going on and how they're feeling about it you know, what, what's going through their heads and, and how they're navigating all this waiting and the lying and the undermining of the, of the quote unquote electoral process and all that. So I have some sense of what they think, but from what I'm getting from them is just, there's a deep anxiety about the entire process in terms of the specificity of the election itself, but also in terms of the electoral process at large and the, you know, the country as a, as a nation state um, overall, they recognize that, uh, you know, from my own teaching and from the classes they've taken in, in African American studies specifically, that um, the anxiety that they're feeling is real, right? The anxiety that they're feeling about needing to remove Donald Trump from office and his administration, and especially people relevant to them like Betsy DeVos, right, is important. Right. But they also recognize that the way that they've, I've been describing it to them is that this is sort of a another node on along the circuitry of our struggle for liberation, whatever the outcome of this, which I mean, it seems to be obviously the outcome that many of us want, 
despite the delays and the ridiculousness of the Republican Party. But, um, you know, whatever the outcome, that the work that was already happening and not just the work from May to now in the streets where people were protesting on behalf of George Floyd and, uh, you know, Breonna Taylor, but the work in general, the long ongoing protracted struggle for Black liberation would just continue regardless. And the difference would be a difference in strategy and approach, difference in possibility. So were it to be the worst case scenario, you know, quote unquote, worst case scenario where Donald Trump won the election, you know, the work would continue in X form, right? Like we would have, a, we mm-hmm. have to, we assess the situation and we would do things based on that outcome. Or if Joe Biden wins the election, which seems to be, you know, the case, and now they're just trying to delay the process as much as possible, whatever that assessment is, then we continue the work based on that situation. So it's just a moment of clarity, you know, a, a moment of direction from what I've seen from them, as opposed to a, mo- a moment of like celebration or joy, it's like relief and direction. And so that's what I've been seeing from most of them. They, they have a sort of cold detachment a little bit from what's happening. I mean, they feel like it's, in some ways they feel like worn down. It feels like, like many of us do. The difference is that they're so young, right? And they're, they're already feeling worn down and tired of all of this and fatigued by the pandemic and then having to deal with the protracted election and then also the lying afterward. You know, it, it, it seems that that's the dominant feeling is, is fatigue, but they also feel like they're focused and they seem to understand, like I do, that whatever happened and whatever happens, that the work will continue, that all it is is going to be a change in strategy and direction. So. Uh, Yeah. So, John, there's something really rich I want to mine with you when you were mentioning Betsy DeVos. And there's a through line here. I think it makes me think of the plantation is still here. She's holding the student loan terms like she's she's sort of it's still the students are under the control of what she determines are the reasonable terms or her terms for whether loans will be renegotiated or forgiven in some cases, some of the much, much older student loans. There's that, and I'm thinking it's happening at the same time that your students are watching the re-enfranchise disproportionately large black population in the state of Florida that was suppressed on the terms of, well, who really gets to be re-enfranchised after serving their time in prison? So those are two kind of plantation motifs that are right here in 2020 in a way, no? Uh, yeah, I think that's that's pretty accurate. For the uninitiated, most of, uh, not most of, but many, many of the scholars in the African American Studies Department on this campus and Davin Phoenix very, has been on there many times, yes. Yeah, yeah. Many of the scholars in our, in our department are Afro-pessimists, meaning at the very least, you know, the very one of the fundamental things we always concern ourselves with is what is differently called by different scholars the afterlife of slavery, which isn't just some cutesy, you know, metaphorical philosophical concept. It's also a concept with materiality that's in the world. And how does slavery persist not just in the ideological constructs and in the in our, in our metaphysical relationship to each other and to the world, but also like how does it materially still continue to exist and structure our daily lives, not just in abstract ways, but in ways that are like bound to the government, to the state, to the operations of electoral politics, to the to financial institutions. Yeah, to financial institutions, to everything, basically to every to every part and facet of society and daily life. You know, how does slavery continue to be a structuring force? by which the world understands itself and by which people in the world understand themselves. 
so yeah it's not really like, like this only would affirm what we already have been thinking for some time now these are just new iterations of a logic that has not been untethered from the world you know this is something that it will find a way to reform itself over and over and over again right. uh, no matter who happens to be in control of power right which is the pessimistic thing about it <laughs> that's what that's why it gets to be pessimism because it's like well yeah you know you can do all these things but so long as that particular es- essential feature exists all the stuff you build around it is still going to be corrupted or poisoned by that thing so betsy devos is just another iteration of yet another agent of this system of this the, of the afterlife of slavery and how it manifests in the world through this particular person um, she's terrible indisputably. And so, you know, this is also something I, I wanted to say that, you know, I, I also kind of chafe against what I see are facile analyses from some of my peers and colleagues that, you know, that, that this is, it doesn't really matter, right? Like whether or not it's Republican or Democrat when it comes to the presidency or when it comes to the Senate or whoever, because of this, because the afterlife of slavery structures everything, and so then they, the, the conclusion that sometimes gets drawn is that, it, you know, well, who cares then? Because it doesn't matter whether or not it's Trump or whether or not it's Biden, these forms of subjection are still going to persist either way. But there are specific things that I think are very distinct in that matter. There's a long list, right? But I, I think the fundamental things are, you know, maybe climate change, healthcare, and education, right? <laughs> like, I, I think something like Betsy DeVos's removal would be beneficial, whether or not the entire structure of the world changes, it might make things more survivable for people who are trying to radically change the world in the first place. So that's kind of my take on that. I do believe that, you know, there's no salvation in a new administration, but there is utility in it for we who are trying to mobilize and and survive. Things might be a little bit, maybe even marginally easier, but easier in a way that is useful for us. Um, And I think that does matter for a lot of us. So DeVos or whoever else, right? I think, I think it doesn't matter when you replace them with someone else. But even if we recognize that, that that's not like a revolution or that's not sal- salvation, it's still, I think, somewhat significant. It can be made useful in a way that this administration could not possibly made, be made useful, so. And I'll bring that up in some other questions later. I don't want to fully unpack it right now, but it seems like an essential step taking though that will keep people involved, uh, civically engaged, a very necessary part of a democracy. And if it, the, the, with this sort of facile dismissal by Afro-pessimists would sort of, people would why bother at all? And you've got a very large unengaged public and that's very dangerous. Yeah, I agree. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it, I mean, most of the people that are saying this aren't necessarily Afro-pessimists. It's, I, cause I'm an Afro-pessimist. So it's just like so, some organizers or some people in some of the younger generation, people across generations really, it just seems to be some some of the logic coming from some people is that you know it, it ultimately is the same thing. Um, most of us though have a more nuanced analysis of this, including you know Frank and Jared and Tiffany and Bridget and all the people in the AFAM department, uh, Sandra Harvey. All the, we all have differently nuanced takes on this that aren't reductive to that point. But I do see like po- part of the popular conversation on like Facebook and Twitter and, and stuff like that. I'm seeing that sentiment a lot. And um, I think it, it's like true with an asterisk, right? Like the, and the asterisk is actually useful and, and important to note in a way that I don't see being done a lot. So yeah, it's not, it's not a Afro-pessimist thing. In fact, the Afro-pessimists are probably the only people I know that are doing anything like a nuanced analysis about this moment. 
they're they're not really ready to just downplay it or to be joyful about it either way. They're they're more ready to, you know, be critical and to adopt a critical position right away, which is um I think pretty important. So keeping an or in the uh, keep, uh, keeping people accountable waters. Yeah, they're ready to assess it as it is, as opposed to mm. not not to ignore feelings, right? Not to ignore sentiment, but right. like to center critique and radical radical critique. That's our mo as Afro pessimist scholars. So. That's the first thing I'm seeing from from most of them. I mean, I think Frank did an interview like a day ago, yes, maybe yesterday, about exactly this thing. So it's about being level-headed, basically. You know, seeing it for what it is, wherever that, whatever that means. I don't know if the popular conversation is able to do that this right away because a lot of times the reactionary sentiment in either direction, you know, either extreme joy or extreme disinterest or apathy, both senses don't really work. And they tend to be a little bit reactionary. Whereas I think a, a, a critical studied analysis and adopting that position early allows us to account for both the joy or the relief and for the apathy and for the disinterest. Like it, it lets us think about both things critically. So I'm more in the middle like that. And I think I'm waiting to, I mean, we're obviously still waiting to see how this all <laughs> unfolds, but that's, that's sort of my take. And I think I share that with all my Afro-pessimist scholar peers and a lot of, you know, it's not just us, you is black, radical black feminists are doing the same work that we're doing. And they're doing the critical work of trying to like direct the conversation the right way right now, because it's really imperative that we're talking in the right terms, you know, using this moment as an opportunity to really center ourselves and continue the work without getting swept up and sort of uh, losing our momentum that we've built up over the last six months, especially, or last right. four and a half months, it's especially, probable. you know, so... I'd just like to reintroduce my guest if you've just joined us. He's John Muriel III, Professor of African American Studies at UCI's School of Humanities. So I want, we've got 70 million people, speaking of being pragmatic, nuanced and all that, what 70 million people is the sobering tally of voters who've supported the man in the White House. That's a daunting challenge to to deal with that. You're, you're talking about how Afro-pessimists are staying involved with the nuance and pragmatism and all that to, to move the needle here while there is this momentum. I'm, I'm sort of putting that number out. I keep, I'm actually gonna bring up 70 million a lot in my sort of everyday kinds of banders, but just put it up there in the interview. So I let's talk, John, We've, we spoke a little bit in preparation for this interview going into the actual election we were talking about breaking down the demographic there's we're going to talk about the black vote here the by we'll break it down by political persuasion by gender and by region and i'm just wondering we'll start with a, a question about would you say that at, that black women tend to be more monolithic than black men voters it's hard to say because i know this is the well you know exit polling is strangely inaccurate, but we get these numbers that say 90 something percent of black women voted Democrat this year, like they did last time for, you know, for Hillary Clinton. And then you get something like 80 something percent of black men that voted for the Democrats and some 18 or 15 or whatever percent did not, right? And voted for uh, the Republican party, whatever the tickets are in various regions of various states, right? And then you get these articles and think pieces that come out that Black men voters turn out for Trump in record numbers, right? 
Yeah, lots of distortions. Which is strange, right? Yeah. Which, yeah. Is, which is strange because even ignoring the headline, right, looking at the statistics themselves, right, the statistical breakdown of all voters, right, even among all groups of men, Black men are still overwhelmingly voting Democrat more than any other group of men in the country, right? So, like, right. more than white men, more than quote-unquote Latino men, which is still a weird problematic sort of designation of people because a lot of people don't always identify as Latinx anyway. Um, but even right. among the statistical representation of that, right, and then Asian men as well, you have this breakdown of all these people and still black men are singularly more democratic each time. They're just less democratic in voting than black women. That's the only group of people that, that votes more democratically than, than them, right? Um, so there's that, which is at the strange focus, right? So to relate this to what I do as a yes. scholar, I do a space and time, but really, really the main thing that I'm always concerned with is, is storytelling. How does a story get conjured, right? And what, what, what mm -hmm. are the impacts of storytelling on how we understand ourselves and our relationship to the world and also how we build the world that we, under, that we relate to, you know? And so the edification of history as history has created the modern world as we know because of the various fictions that get stitched together and understood as truth. And then that truth is proliferated as modernity. You know, now we have this mm. narrative of what constitutes the world as we know it today. So we believe that it moved from this point to this point with these actors and these agents and these important characters and so on and so on. And so in this moment, right, when you see the articles coming out before the election's even over about voter turnout and uh, the overwhelming shift or this radical shift in, in Black men who have started to vote more toward the Republican Party, and you see that that's like the framing of this information. We know we all have the same statistical breakdowns, but they're framing the information that way. It starts to create this narrative that sort of defers the potential of blame, right? If, if the election went the other way to like this shift in black men who had somehow switched voting, you know, they, they betrayed the race and they started voting to uh, voting the Republican party. And so because of this one or 2% more of black men than last time voted for Republican Party, we end up losing the election. Therefore, it's black men's fault that the election went the other way, as opposed to, right, the, there's not many analyses of, for example, the consistency of, and the almost, the, and the also like burgeoning numbers of, of overall white people that vote for Republican Party, right? Like, it's like, it went from, was it 53% or something for, for white women last time? And then that went to 56% increase, right? Uh, you have like, white men who consistently vote Republican almost every time at almost an overwhelming majority, but there aren't articles and narratives written about that, right? It's always the sort of concern for the black vote, which is strange because then it, it's, it plays into all those old logics so wherein on the one hand, and this is something that Sadia Hartman writes about. So if anybody listening wants to read more about it, right? Look up Sadia Hartman and read, okay. read her work, but specifically in Scenes of Subjection, where she analyzes how the emancipation of the slaves, part of what it did was create a system of logic that deferred responsibility and, you know, in parentheses, blame to Black people in the process of liberating Black people, right? So um, in the same way that a slave, for example, could be blamed for an action that in, in which the master hurt themselves, right? the slave could be blamed for leaving the rake out that the master stepped on and the master will kill the slave as a sort of retribution for the master's mistake. So in, in that logic sort of exploded or diffused itself out 
when the slaves are freed after the Emancipation Proclamation, you get this moment where now that you're free, you are responsible for yourself. And because you're responsible for yourself and you're responsible for your civic duties and for your role as a, as a citizen, constricted and limited as it is, right? You are also now to blame for any particular thing that doesn't fit within the civil in, within civil society's like strictures. And so if something comes out that, you know, things aren't going the way we need them to go, we can seed a narrative like early that plants the idea that, oh, well, you know what, if this doesn't turn out the way that we want it to, we immediately turn and look at, in this instance, black male voters, right? So that part of it is the sort of world building and, and the storytelling around that basically inheres in the same anti-Black logics of, of the plantation and of, of the slave state. The other part of that is that there are so many more Black male voters that are disenfranchised by yes. the criminal justice system, right? And so there's what, um, you know, three to four million Black men that are disenfranchised because of the felony disenfranchisement laws. Three to four million people, right? And then some states are allowing, you know, are trying to repair that situation a little bit. But beyond that, right, if you have three to four million people that aren't voting, that are disenfranchised by the system, and that aren't probably going to vote for this, whatever the association between Black men and this fraught masculinity and patriarchy that they believe they have access to, right? Yes. It's unlikely that the majority or even a, a good fraction of those people that haven't, that are disenfranchised would vote against their interests, right, which, or would vote, say, Republican, right? I'm not even saying Democrats are fully for Black interests. I'm just saying, like, if this, if that's going to be the divide, it's very likely that the three to four million people that aren't voting, because they're, they can't vote, they would most likely, if they were going to vote, overwhelmingly vote Democrat. And so that, that distinction, that divide, right, between 80% or 82%, and then the 95% with Black women or whatever it is, that divide might collapse significantly if we actually have to add in those voters that are disenfranchised over, you know, from being overwhelmingly represented in the, in the prison population or just straight up disenfranchised because they've been released from prison and can't access the vote. And then there's also 700 to 900,000 fewer voting age black men than black women in the population overall due to higher rates of homicide and poor health. So you add all those numbers up, you get almost like somewhere between four and 5 million people that aren't able to vote. Um, either because they're dead or disenfranchised, that may very well overwhelmingly vote Democrat if that's their interest, right? I, I doubt they would vote Republican, but I can't, you know, no one can say for sure. But if, if you if you track that along the same lines, you would collapse that divide pretty distinctly. And then the, the monolith, quote unquote, monolith of, of Black voting would probably be overall probably 90 something percent for the Democratic Party. And so then the question becomes then like, why is every other group so divided? And how they vote, right? There will always be black men and black women also that vote Republican. And the, the easy explanation for that is that they falsely believe in some kind of class association between themselves and the, the rich, right? You get the, you see all the rappers and celebrities that are black celebrities, black men celebrities that are coming out right before the election voting for Trump and advocating for him and say, oh, we're going to work with him like days before the election happens. You know, they're, they're scared of their losing their their class interests, their class affiliations. They don't want to be taxed, basically, they, the way that they think they're going to be taxed, because they think that association between them being among rich people right, is, is a stronger association than them being amongst other Black people. And so they'll, they'll vote their class interests, you know, their false class interests, but they'll vote their class interests instead. So there'll always be a few percentage points of, of Black people overall 
and mo probably more black men, yeah, uh, that would vote Republican for sure. But um, I, think I, th I think the focus on that is, is, is from, from a lot of media outlets and stuff, I, I think that focus is only part of this larger narrative that if something were to not quite work out, it would be the fault of this shadowy figure of the black male voter. Yeah, that, that's how that that's, that tends to, tends to happen. Well, I'm thinking in terms of when we're dealing with close elections, which they have been for the last several cycles, that the strategists are always looking at in terms of any kinds of subtra subtraction they can do for their opposition. So if, if they can subtract the, you know, a portion of the black males or whatever, whatever group they're identifying or, or very, very conservative other uh, like Chinese Americans or that. any kind of subtraction really is critical in tight races. And so that's the subtraction was also in the disenfranchising and not re-enfranchising of the disproportionately black formerly serving time in Florida's incarceration there. So I wanna to get to the role though, that the women, black women were formidable organizers. I mean, they were unabashedly a women's groups. We have the Black Lives Matters founders. Then we had Stacey Abrams with Fair Fight having mobilized minimally 800,000 newly registered voters in Georgia. And that is going to continue in the discussion of the runoff U.S. Senate election on January 5th. But mm -hmm. let's, I want to uh, talk about though the role that the women played, oh, and let me include um, Allison M.A., the founder of She the People, they were, all of these groups, really formidably strategic organizers in, I think, playing a huge role in the 2020 general, well, the primary, the general election. And I would wonder about the impact they will carry into the Georgia Senate runoff January 5th. You wanna talk about that. And we, we certainly, we have another kind of representation in Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, who gave a nod to all of these women in her contemporaries, as well as the earlier organizers, you know, 50, 60, 70, and 100 years ago. But let's talk about the role that these women have played in the body politic. Yeah. It kind of, if beyond all the things we were talking about with thinking about the black male vote, quote unquote, black male vote, right? There is no doubt that if there is any group of people to thank for anything that happened in this election, anything positive, quote, you know, positive for the Democrats, there is no other group to thank than black women, which is why there was a lot of pushback to something like, um, I think Eva Longoria went on Twitter and said something like, Latina women are the heroes of the election. But there's a huge pushback because that yeah there was you know, I saw yeah that's statistically not true and also like it downplays the immense efforts of black women on the ground uh, in classrooms in the streets organizing sustaining all of us which you know has it that that itself has its own resonances with uh, enslavement right black mm -hmm. women sustaining everybody often at their own expense because uh, you know Kamala Harris said exactly this, or at least gestured toward this in her speech that night on Saturday when, when the you know, results were finally called for, for Biden. But it remains to be seen if that's more than just lip service, because it often 
in fact it might be this is this is the pessimistic angle of this right this, this might act that might actually do more damage than it would help anything because it'll allow the democratic party to say that they said it and that they expressed it but do absolutely nothing on behalf of the black women that came out to vote for them in the first place so like i think this the seed for that take right it comes from what we're seeing right with um i don't know if you saw the the, the response that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had right after the election um, when she was talking very candidly and very in her, at least in terms of the, the, the Democratic Party radically about one, the outcome of the election and two, the pushback they're already getting and the blame they're already getting for, for, not, for, for progressive candidates and for, for progressive people for losing the, the Democratic Party some seats in the House. And so the blame, like, it kind of goes to another version of the, of the blameworthy thing with, with the black male vote, right? Where you set it up so that you can, on the one hand, acknowledge verbally that, yeah, it's true that you wouldn't, there's no chance that this election would have gone this way without black women, singularly without black women, you know, like black women organized all this stuff. They, they have been tireless about with their efforts and been rigorous in their analysis. And they've also stated very clearly, like what the platforms they want supported are. And yet, you know, on the other hand, there's like, this pushback against any of the quote unquote progressive platforms that motivated black women to vote in the first place, this pushback against all those platforms, all those things that, that voters say that they want overwhelm. And I know it's not just black women that want like say universal healthcare, right? But like, that's definitely one of the things that interests people in voting, especially marginalized groups of people. And um, to have these backroom conversations or hear about these backroom conversations between the more moderate you know, centrist Democrats who don't want to have any progressive change because they're too busy trying to appeal to this illusory moderate Republican that'll switch sides to them, as opposed to the overwhelming wave of progressive voters that are really trying to find something to latch onto here in these elections and these in these candidates that really aren't being spoken to directly, right? So when you say, you know, when Kamala says, you know, Black women are the backbone of democracy, yeah, she's saying the truth, but she's also like, I think in some ways strategically shielding herself and from and and Biden and from their administration from having to actually do or say anything meaningful for the black women that secured their presidency right um because we you know it's not it's one thing that black lives matter for example black I know I know a lot of people in black lives matter LA that they very very much advocated for particular policy platforms and and for different measures and provisions people's um, budget right yeah yeah they had they have a whole list of things that they want right um it's not just that they were like hey go everybody go vote vote and everybody go vote democrat they also were like hey go vote because we need these things done and so it remains to be seen if the democratic party will say hey you know we recognize that you all voted for us and you voted for us almost exclusive, like a lot of people voted for, for us, not because they were excited about us, but because they were desperate to get the other one out, right? Not, so we, we have to do things. We recognize that we have to do things to meet your needs and to, to address what you asked for. We'll see if they do that, because if they don't do that, then we end up in another situation where they use Black people, and specifically Black women, but the Black people in this monolithic Black vote that always votes for Democrats, overwhelmingly, they use that vote to get into the office and then they do nothing for Black people when they get there uh, because it's too radical or it's too progressive. It might alienate the moderate voters. It might it, it might lose them some of the midterm election seats or whatever, right? Um, well, it's already happening with- uh, It's already happening, yeah. John Kasich and various people that are, they're, they're handing out 
uh, advice, <laughs> unsolicited advice about how there should be a reach from across the aisle. And it's a, it's a hard exercise, right? With the reaching across when there's this very toxic sort of message emblazoned on uh, the opposition's, uh, the other side of the aisle's sentiments about you know, their, their racial politics and that kind of thing. So it's a, there, there's already this challenge to do for, let's say the victorious, victorious Democrats to reach out to the Republican side this time amidst a very, very corrosive kind of message that came from the Republican side, in, all the way from the White House down to name your street in red America. Right, yeah, and it, it's revelatory, right? Because it is. it's sort of, you, you, you say, thank you for the votes, and then you turn, turn your back to them and start reaching, a, quote unquote, reaching across the aisle to people who have, become more entrenched in their conservative beliefs than they've probably ever openly been anyway. And you, you have this clear, dem- like this, you know, they talk about a mandate, right? But Biden likes to say, you know, he's saying the lang- using the language of mandate to address the 4 million voter lead, right? That he had in the popular vote. And, you know, yeah, that's, that's useful to secure himself as a legitimate, per- as the legitimate president. Elected right? official, person- yeah. Yeah, like, you know, you, you do that language so that you can affirm yourself in the eyes of the people, the 70 million people that did not vote for you, right? But on the other hand, how many people are in this country, right? How many people are eligible to vote in this country? How many people didn't vote at all? Even recognizing that this is, you know, this is probably an alarming situation and you want to remove Donald Trump at all costs, right? Like this, they, they say that, but then at the same time, they're so disinterested in being locked into voting for your party as the alternative because you don't do anything for them. What about all those people that are not motivated to be involved because your policies are too weak or too limited or too unimaginative you're not really changing anything that that's why the groundwork has already been laid for that you know the the sort of the unity language is being used not to describe say unity among the democrats right or unity among all people it's unity between uh, and it's yet to be seen if that's even possible but unity between extreme right far right like republican and centrist, maybe center-right Democrat, right? Right, and correct. And all the people on the left of that, everybody on the left of that just gets called vaguely and in a disembodied kind of way, the left. <laughs> they just get Disembodied, classified. yeah. Well put. It is disembodied, right, yeah. Well, I, I want to examine, though, the women that were so strategic that these Black women, one can argue, have much more intimate connections with the ravages of the pandemic. And it's the progressive reforms of these things you were talking about earlier in healthcare, in uh, rescue packages for job security and all, all those kinds of things, they're much closer. So they're not gonna stop talking about what we've got, what work is ahead. And it's, it's a different message. You know, they're, they're dealing with this emergency that really did get downplayed within the last I don't know, three or four months. It wasn't as much a discussion as devastating, as lethal as the pandemic is. So wouldn't you say that that's their their proximity to this public health hazard that sort of wants them to move into where these reforms are taking place? It's not about an ideological thing. It's a very pragmatic public health response. Yeah, it's it's both, right? Because you're like, you're thinking in terms of as as a as a person organizing for these things, right? Where you're you're thinking in terms of plainly sustainability 
Um, right. And not just the, com the conventional conversation of sustainability about like the environment, which is definitely very important and included in these policy demands or policy uh, outlines from various black groups and political organizing around the country. You know, sustainability in terms of like sustaining the movement, you know, because uh, at least in my mind, it's hard for anything to be done, you know, any sort of protesting, any sort of widespread and, and large scale pushback to take place at its maximum, not as it's already taking place. It's already very large movement that's been taking place for, for years, but especially in the last several months with after George Floyd was, was murdered. So that I'm not saying it's already, not already a large scale movement, but I know full well that there are thousands of people who are not out there and not able to be out there and, and helping organize and getting involved and moving because of some fundamental things that are not available to us right now, right? especially during a pandemic. I mean, just even if the pandemic had been managed remotely competently, you know, the, just the, the, the movement itself would be far more sustainable because fewer people would be one at risk of getting this virus and, and contracting it while they're out trying to move and, uh, and be active for the things that they believe in. But two, also like the numbers would increase significantly because those of us who are deeply afraid of going outside or who are especially vulnerable to even the slightest chance of getting the virus and, you know, have to make that decision. Well, what do I want to risk getting sick or do I want to go out and join the, the movement, the mass movement that's happening? We won't have to make that decision, right? So part of the voting is, yeah, definitely pragmatic on that level, but it's always going to be animated by like a set of essential ideological beliefs that, I mean, essentially all in orbit of the simple claim that Black lives do matter or at least should matter, right? There should be a world in which Black lives matter. And, um, you know, because of that essential statement, that organizing statement, right? That governing principle, these other actions become directed towards sustaining us as we go about trying to make the world that will make that sentence true, you know? So yeah, I see it's, it's an intersection between, you know, ideological need and demand and pragmatic necessity that so many black women spent tireless hours, you know, organizing for the vote, organizing to get people out to vote. And uh, you see that in big cities, especially in these swing states, you know, these, these big cities and where there are predominantly black people that turned out in record numbers and swung the states the way that the Democrats would hope that they had been swung, you know, Michigan with Detroit, uh, Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, you know, Georgia's got Atlanta, right? You got all these and places Milwaukee. that, yeah, in Milwaukee, you got these places where, you know, the, the, the numbers of, of black people that came out because of the organizing efforts of black women played a really deterministic role in, in the outcome of this election. And so, you know, that the hope and we all do recognize that it is a perhaps distant hope, but the hope is that that activity will necessitate some real action, right, on our behalf you know, by the Democratic Party. Now, as an Afro-pessimist, I am not of the mind that that will happen, but I understand the, that the impulse is guided by that hope, you know, that hope that at, at, very, at the very least, there is a better opportunity with these people than there if ever could possibly be with the other people. And that's probably the extent of what people feel about this in terms of like realistic expectation, you know? But um, yeah, yeah, I think it's imperative to recognize 
the weird intersection between a sort of pragmatic sustainability and a ideological refusal to limit oneself to just pragmatism, right? We recognize that the pragmatic things we want are really not, are not gonna be the liberation that we want in the end, that we may need these things to survive if we're gonna make it to that point. So yeah, that's the kind of framing I'm seeing from most people that I know. And um, that's kind of how I think about it in my own. Before I wanna jump into a, a, an example of where we're at that juncture is still open here. I just wanna remind people you're listening to Digging Out. My guest is John Murillo III. He's professor of African-American studies at UC Irvine School of Humanities. He has a new book coming out in January in quotes, impossible stories on the space and time of black destructive creation. It's published by Ohio State University Press. So I think there's for the 2020 general election, there's another act. I don't know if we could call it the final act. It's going to be the US Senate runoff elections two, not one, but two of them in the state of Georgia, which is still having the presidential votes being accounted and tallied. So in, on January 5th, we're going to see what is in this sauce of what you were talking about, the intersection of the liberation of politics and pragmatic politics. See what how Stacey Abrams' fair fight and Black Lives Matters founders and uh, organizers and other groups, I mean, they're, they're coming to be descending from all over the country to get, I mean, they're getting busy right now, but I'm seeing there's a, a very structural deterrent to, uh, or a, there's a structural kind of predicate here that uh, it's disturbing to me, John, that the coverage of this runoff, it's not mentioned enough when the tally of representation of the parties in the US Senate at this point, there's a huge sort of self-evidence about seeing a Republican majority sustained in the US Senate, but that's not decided yet. And that's another structural problem for that runoff for Democrats, for African, for black voters, for progressive voters. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the runoff is gonna be quite interesting. I know that I, I, when, I, when I think of the runoff and the sort of protracted nature of the election, especially as it's going in Georgia. But I mean, even the, the way that things have been counted and, you know, you wait day after day with things trickling in and things trickling out, you know, that, that protracted waiting, right, for many of us is, is waiting. For many of us, it's, it's uh, what do people call it, doom scrolling? You know, they doom scroll their face. Well, people went know. to joy scrolling for uh, like a, about a day, a day and a half, and then they went back to doom scrolling. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, you know, people, but for a lot of us, that's sort of how this is going, right? Or, um, but for the first thing that came to mind when I thought of that runoff was the labor of black women in the state. You know, we talk about the organizing efforts around the country and it's, it's hard to capture fully the amount of effort and energy yes. that goes into that. And, the, yes. and also the, the peril of doing that because it's, it's no accident that people are getting threatened and targeted for their involvement in trying to stoke these voting fires, right? They, they're trying to, for, for every bit of action on their, on, on, and organizing on behalf of black women and, and done by black women, there is also definitely like the, the threat of violence from, from people who don't want this to, to meet out that way, right? And so all of that will now be elongated for the next, you two know, months. what, two months where 
the already, you know, tireless and very exhausting, right, labor of Black women organizing in that state to get people to vote, right, it's going to have to continue for the next two and a half months or two months, right? And as this is stretched out, these people are going to be asked to do so much more to keep things going. What I'll be looking for, you know, okay. in terms of the story storytelling of all this stuff is, you know, what kind of articles come out about that in the meantime, right? Because, you know, the Senate is so important. So now, now everything hinges on these two. Uh, Huge. The, the logic are, yeah. And so, so, you know, they, the, the logic is already that like, okay, you know, great that, you know, Biden's here and they're going to handle, presumably going to handle all this legal stuff and Biden will be the president-elect, but it's going to really be way more important if Biden has the Senate and the House with him to, to get the legislation passed. True. Now, what I'm worried about is the same thing that I was worried about with the sort of the, the narrative of blame and responsibility here, because I know Black women are sitting there organizing, working day in and day out to get everybody to go vote. Right. And that that effort's going to be sustained at the peril and detriment and exhaustion of black women involved right now. They're going to continue to work. Are they also going to be blamed if it doesn't turn out the way that we want it to? Right. Like, is it going to be like, oh, well, they didn't do enough. They couldn't get enough people to vote if the runoff goes, say, 51-49 for the opposition, you know, the, the, the Republicans. Right. On the end, conversely, will they be praised and, and not just praised verbally, but like in an active kind of way where policy actually helps black people, will they be praised if it turns out that because of the efforts of black women in the, in Georgia, um, especially in, in those districts does produce the results that everybody wants, right? That everybody wants to, that we end up getting to say, say we win both uh, quote unquote, we, right. So say the Democrats win both those seats. Is it going to be that black women are pr- like people, do people bow down on their knees and thank black women for that, for that victory that's apparently all important, so significant, deterministic of the future of this country, like all those things, right? We, we say all that language now, but will they, will the praise, right? Will the, ex, will the embrace of black women in that state match the uh, level of importance that we're attributing to those races now? And also will the blame, right? If, if it doesn't go that way, will the blame match the level of importance that we've attributed to those two races, right? Will they, will they be thrown under the bus, so to speak, for not getting things done enough right, on our behalf as we sit and scroll and, and wait for things to happen, right? And so I'm curious about that because, of course, you know, I understand the way this government is set up. So, you know, if there were going to be any liberal policies passed, the, the Senate is almost requisite for that to happen. But I am concerned about how that plays out. Like, is it, on the one hand, going to go the way everybody wants to go for, you know, the, the left or the, lib- you know, the liberal side of things wants to go? And even if it, if, if it does go that way, you know, is it going to be some kind of speech like Kamala Harris's speech where they thank Black women for their organizing and then move on? A box checking it, exercise. Yeah, you know, you check, oh, okay, we thanked them. We're done now. Let's go back to making sure we appeal to the Republican voters in the state so we can make sure we don't lose our seat. And say, you know, what, like, is that what's going to happen? Or, which I, I, you know, it's probably the most likely outcome. But if it defies my expectations, right, and these people actually do win their runoff elections and then do more than just pay lip service to black women and black people in the state, then great, wonderful. You know, that's exactly what we wanted. But um, at best, I'm like hesitant and nervous about that particular angle of the entire thing. Um, but before we get to that development though, I am see, I see it as very pernicious, John, that the press is really prematurely conceding a majority of Republicans in, in the US Senate and that sort of downplaying the importance of this runoff of two U.S. Senate 
races in one state, in a state that electoral votes are still, presidential electoral votes are still being counted. And I, so it's sort of, that's the early part. This is, this is the setup about this election, even before we get to the part where you understand they're talking about who's gonna, to whom is the victory or the loss attributed in those that have exhausted themselves in the, I guess it would be the, it's the final act or it's the, it's overtime. It's overtime, I guess, to use that sports analogy. Yeah, yeah. And um, it goes back to, I think in my, in my, in my framing, it goes back to how the story is gonna be told, right? Yeah, and- yeah. You know, if the story right now is being, if it's being told already that it's like kind of an expectation of a loss, right? It sets up the people who follow the media to kind of be, to feel some type of way already. It primes. It sort I, of primes do you hear that too? I'm hearing that. Are you hearing that as well? Yeah. And, you know, it's. It's very pernicious. It is. And it, but it, it's the, it's the way that I guess, I guess it's sort of, it's sort of, uh, how things play out all the time. So I'm not, I'm no longer surprised by the way that things, these things sort of, they unfold. I mean, I, I since I've, you know, I track narrative in this kind of mm-hmm. metacritical way, you know, I see, this is kind of how it always unfolds. Like, you know, you, you, you lay the seeds in the media to cover all your bases. And so at some point, some one outcome is going to be affirmed and then everybody can kind of say that they already said it. Right. And so then, then and you, you can already, you already have the seeds or the foundations, the narrative building blocks for that story to unfold. And then you just plug in the one you, you build from there, depending on what the outcome is. This is something you, you mentioned something that's sports related before, but like uh, you said, you said uh, overtime. And um, yeah, like probably the best example of this is actually sports media. Um, they will find ways to contradict, they will contradict themselves day in and day out throughout the season of whatever sport, you know, this, with basketball for me. And then at the end of the season, they can go back and say that they said whatever version, whatever thing that turned out right. So they said all 10 different possibilities and contradicted themselves all year. But then once the outcome is determined, they can say, oh, I said that one thing six months ago. And so now the press can like lay the foundations for either outcome in all their, you know, their op-eds and their reporting on the subject, right? They interview each group of people. And so the seeds are there for any particular story to unfold. And so you see that, yeah, you get the you get the pernicious stuff about like already kind of conceding the loss or like thinking about what it means to have not have the majority in the Senate. But you also see like some of the stuff about oh the race is contested, it's a runoff, and we're you know there's like a little bit of optimism in those pieces. So that whichever thing happens, they've you know, made hedge their bet. Yeah, yeah, they hedge the bet, and they already have the story. So they called it already. They already knew. They had the foresight. You know, they they were magical, predictive, clairvoyant, whatever. Um, so you'll see it happen. You know, we're already watching it unfold as we hear stories about all the backroom conversations and all the, you know, it's already unfolding. So you just have to follow the narrative and see which one gets gets to be told and which one becomes the dominant story based on the outcomes that we see in January and beyond. So we didn't get a chance to talk really about your work, about the aspect of the anti-Black tropes always used against black blood and bodies as I'm sort of paraphrasing you. And I want to have a conversation in digging out when your book is available, when I will have had a chance to read impossible stories on the space and time of black destructive creation. And I guess there's two questions I'd like to wrap with and they're both of them outsized questions. So will African American studies continue to be the right way to educate 
undergrads and graduate students and their communities? Or is there another way to organize the intellectually honest history of our country, to the, a more thorough grasp of the history of our country in different other ways to put this curriculum in different other departments and schools on campuses? Um, yes, African-American studies will be the, the right way. Um, well, but I will say that with a, with a caveat that, for example, there's a scholar named Joy James who uh, is brilliant and really impactful especially with among the scholars in UCI specific African American studies department. And um, you know, her work aligns heavily with Afro-pessimism, but, but one of the things that she has been very critical of recently is the role of institutionalization, especially with regard to like the subject matter that we talk about, the, the institutionalization of something called radical black feminism, the institutionalization of something called Afro-pessimism, the institutionalization of whatever part of black studies or whatever school of thought in black studies exists. And how that institutionalization can, on the one hand, dull the weapons that these critical tools are supposed to be for us by way of institutionalizing them and sort of diffusing them, watering them down, you know, sort of doing that work, but also how they can turn those weapons against us by way of allowing places to appear or perform a sort of radical politic without having to actually do anything. This is sort of the way that, for example, UC system rich writ large, or but all all university systems, not specific just to say UCI, but definitely specific to here as well. That you can benefit from the profoundly important work of Black studies on your campus without actually having to do anything for the Black students on those campus, right? So like it's kind of it's kind of the same thing as the electoral politics, right? You can like benefit from the appearance of saying you know Black women are the backbone of democracy without actually having to do anything for Black women. So that part of it makes me have the asterisk to the yes, yeah, I think black studies, uh, African-American studies, but black studies writ, writ large is the, the way to do this, is the way to understand the world as it is structured, which is why I, I, I signed up to teach this stuff, right? But, um, right. right, but on the other hand, we have to do it in a way that is, as Christina Sharp, who is another scholar that people should probably look into, as Christina Sharp would describe it as in an undisciplined kind of way, way that is not not reducible to the institution itself, and that pushes back or strains against the limits of the institution and the imposition of institutionality. So what we call African-American studies as an institutional moniker of like what we're doing and the department and all that stuff, like that is useful to organize some people's thinking, but the work that is being done in that department from all our scholars is not exactly reducible only to what they call and what they believe is African-American studies at the institutional level. So um, yeah, I do think Black studies specifically, if I had to give you a more specific answer, you know, it's not just African-American studies writ large or Black studies writ large, but like specific strains of African-American theory of Black studies, right? Afro-pessimism on the one hand, and then Black radical feminism on the other hand. I think those two things are the two most important and most truthful or most honest um, theoretical frameworks by which we could understand anything that's happening in this world today and anything that might happen in the future. So, um, you know, I, I focus on Afro-pessimism, right? But Afro-pessimism itself wouldn't exist without the work of radical Black feminism. It, it is a departure from, but it is built upon the work of like Hortense Spillers, who is another scholar people should look into, Sadia Hartman, who we talked about earlier. Hortense Spillers, she's, if not the most important scholar maybe the second or third you know she's she's definitely 
one of our most central thinkers in um, all of Black studies, regardless of whatever school of thought people ascribe to. Sadia Hartman too, I mean, especially since she's getting more prominence with her MacArthur grant and all that stuff. But yeah, but those two things, Black radical feminism and Afro-pessimism as the two frameworks within Black studies are the only two things I'll ever use to analyze the world or think about the world because I don't think anything else does it honestly with the level of rigor and with the level of attention to Black life that these two frameworks do. Yeah, Black studies for sure writ large, but, but those two particular strains of it, I think, are where we need to really turn our attention and do some reading. So I guess the final, final question, tacking on to how the education is built to address this in the university system. I, for, for, all, for all constituents of our society, as a parting shot, are we going to teach our way or entertain our way out of this white supremacy mess we've created these last 400 years? Well, you know, if, uh, <laughs> if, if the, the annoying, annoyingly vapid politics of celebrities is any indication, we're definitely never going to entertain our way out of this. But um, if we're going to, we're going to definitely have to teach our way out of this. And teaching isn't just, you know, learning new information, right? It's not just reading a new book and then adding that to your stockpile of information. It's also using what you've encountered newly in the world to unlearn all the other garbage that you you thought was true or thought was necessary. It's the double work of learning and unlearning. You know, you have to unlearn oh. all the tendencies that are bad and all the, all the sort of fallacious ideas and, you know, assumptions. You have to be unmade and dis- disintegrated and pulled apart. And what needs to fill that void is the new material that you've encountered that, you know, in my mind would come from, you know, radical Black feminism and Afro-pessimism. So yeah, you got to do both things. You got to learn and unlearn. That was remarkable. That caps it all. Well, John, you've been really generous with your time. I know you've got more Zoom sessions to go today. Thank you so much for being on Digging Out today. Uh, No problem. Uh, it It was great to be here. My guest was John Mario III, Professor of African American Studies, Black Studies, if you will, at UC Irvine's School of Humanities. He's got some remarkable things to say in his book coming out in January. The title is Impossible Stories on the Space and Time of Black Destructive Creation, published by Ohio State University Press. Thanks again, John, and good luck with the fall term. Thank you. Next week, my guest will be Tom Bowman, and he'll talk about his new publication, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple. Talk with you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.